I want to welcome you back to our series on hoarding. I want to welcome you here at Hobson Campus, 111th Campus, and I want to thank and welcome all the folks who are watching us internationally. Isn't that wonderful? We talked about it last weekend. I always want to include them on the weekends now that I know that they're watching us as far away, get this, as Bangladesh, all right, uh, tuning in and checking us out. So it's pretty exciting. And... Uh, it's good to be together. You know, it's uh, really interesting. Uh, you see the background behind me. There's a bunch of junk up here on the stage. But we already have people asking us what's going to be done with that stuff up there. Because some of you have your eyes on some of this stuff. All the more reason why we're doing this series on hoarding. And that kind of stuff's going on. Last weekend, we talked about the fact that each one of us struggles with hoarding in our lives. And I know it's hard to accept that, but it's true. We all struggle with hoarding because all of us have a little bit of self-centeredness in our lives. How many of you will admit this weekend that you can be a little selfish at times besides me, all right? All of us can, whether you're here or at 111th or somewhere around the world. We all struggle with selfishness. And that selfishness is, is part of what drives kind of a hoarding attitude and a hoarding spirit. We're always looking at how we can improve our position in life. How we can accumulate maybe just a little bit more. It kind of reminds me of what I've been watching in my backyard the last couple of weeks. We have these squirrels running around just stuffing their faces till it looks like their cheeks are going to explode. They have so many nuts in there. And I just thought, man, that is such a picture of us, isn't it? You know, we don't think we look that bad, but in all honesty, we just run around seeing how much more we can put into our lives because we have bought into this philosophy that our culture just screams at us continuously that more is better. Actually, I'd like you to say it with me uh, at wherever campus you are right now together. Ready? More is better. Now, that may have been hard to say here this weekend, but it's a philosophy that our culture operates on. And I think it's a philosophy we're oftentimes tempted to operate on, that more is better. But here's the question, is it really? Is more really better? Have you ever tested that theory, that more is better? Most of us don't. Most of us just plunge right in and and we just say, yeah, it feels right. It's got to be better. More happiness, more pleasure, more things. And things bring happiness and money brings happiness, success. So more must be better. But I want to suggest to you that before you continue living with that philosophy or before you start living by that philosophy or hammering that philosophy home to your kids, if you have kids, maybe it'd be a good idea to ask yourself, What does a person's life look like if they really follow that hardcore, that idea that more is better? So that's why I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn open to the very first book of the Bible where we were last weekend, to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. I had to get a new Bible, and it's like 
two times the size the Bible I was using because I couldn't see it anymore, even with glasses on. And I had a confession to make. I got so desperate that I had to go to the resource center and get this. So I owe you, I think it's $30, all right? So hold me accountable to that, all right? $30, kind of Dutch, it seems kind of pricey, but... That's all right. I'll pay for it. Okay, just kidding. All right, it's a great price for the Word of God. All right, Genesis chapter 13. So open up there, if you will, please. And what's scary is it's in large print, and I still need my glasses. Man. All right, Genesis chapter 13. And in that passage of Scripture, Abraham has just said to his nephew Lot that he can choose any parcel of land that he wants, and they will separate and, and, and go their ways. And so it says in verse 10 that Lot took a long look at the lush and fertile plains of the Jordan Valley. And that is what he wanted. It was the perfect spot for somebody like Lot who was following the philosophy that more is better. There couldn't be a better place to move to than the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley. It was like a, it was like a paradise. I mean, there's so much water and vegetation that he and his family and his herds and his, and his, uh, herdsmen could settle down there and live there all the time. They would have to be nomads like Abram was and traveling all over the place. They could stay there because there was Plenty. It even says in Genesis chapter 13, as that plain is being described to us, that it was like the garden of the Lord in verse 10. It was a real paradise. But just as there was a serpent in the garden of the Lord, spewing out lies and deception. So in what I call Paradise Valley, where Lot is moving, there's Sodom. And Sodom, well, Sodom is the purveyor of seduction and materialism and lies, just like the serpent was in the garden. In fact, it just tells us in that passage, if you keep reading there in Genesis 13, that Sodom had a reputation for Great wickedness. And in fact, in another commentary presented to us in the book of Ezekiel, we are told this. It says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, that Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins. And what's so crazy is that it tells us in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 12 that Lot says goodbye to his uncle and he moves his tents, he moves his family, his herds and his herdsmen, he moves them near, near the city of Sodom and its twin city, Gomorrah. You're like... If you know it's wicked, and he knew it was wicked, he knew he had a reputation for wickedness. If you know that, why do you move near that? Now, if that's hard to understand, there's something else that's really hard to understand. It's what we're told about Lot in the New Testament. If you want to turn your Bibles open to 2 Peter for just a moment, it's like toward the end of your Bible, toward the book of Revelation. There's just this small commentary about Lot. He's being used as an illustration of God rescues the righteous. And listen to what it says about him in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. It says, 
But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Verse 8, yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Now, I have a real hard time with that passage of Scripture, and I think you're going to understand why as we move through this story together. How could Lot, a good man, a righteous man, move next to Sin City? Because when it says there that Lot was a good man, a righteous man, what it means is that deep down inside, Lot wanted what was good and Lot wanted what was right. Lot had good and righteous intentions. But listen carefully, though he had good and righteous intentions, Lot made bad choices. Have you ever known people like that? People who are good. People who love what is good. And yet they make bad choices choices. We know pastors and preachers like that who can get up and speak and teach passionately from the Word of God in, in deep ways. I mean, they just, they, the Word of God just comes out and they, they, they talk about you know, things they're passionate about and convicted about, and yet we watch them make bad choices, morally speaking. Perhaps you've known Christian leaders or other believers who can quote you chapter and verse and who who stand for what is good and what is right, but then they turn around and they make bad choices in business. They make unethical choices in relationships. They make bad choices in in going on the computer. They make bad choices, the websites they go to. And you just want to pull your hair out and wonder, what's going on there? This person seems so good, so right. They, they speak about what's good. They speak about what's right. They live, you know, what seems to be this great, perfect life. And then, boom, they make this bad choice. You're like, how can somebody do that? And the truth is, we all, we all wrestle with that in our lives, don't we? I mean, if we're being really honest with each other, Don't you just sometimes amaze yourself? Not in a good way. I mean, you know what the truth is. You want what's right. You love God. You love God's word. It's important to you. You talk about it. You think about it. And yet there's this battle inside of you where you want to make the wrong choice, where you want to make the bad choice. And sometimes you make that. Nobody else knows about it. You know about it. It torments your soul, what you've just done or what you keep doing. What is it that causes good people to make bad choices? Good people like you and me. What is it that causes us to make bad choices? Is more better? Why do good people make bad choices? Maybe we got some tough questions to answer this weekend. So let's get on with Lot's story and get some answers to that. When you go to chapter 14, a regional battle, a regional war breaks out. And there are two alliances of kings that that go to battle with each other. One alliance is led by the king of Sodom and another group of kings who've been for 12 years subject to a king by the name of Ketularimar, the king of Elam, and his little confederacy. A king of Sodom and his guys, they decide, you know what, we're not going to pay any more money to you. 
I'm rebelling, we're rebelling, we're breaking this. And so Kedilaramar comes in with his alliance and they do battle together and they, they decimate King Sodom and the rest of his alliance and send them running to the mountains. And Kedilaramar, he goes in and he just pillages Sodom. He takes all of its wealth with him and many of its citizens as slaves. And one of those citizens happens to be Lot. And a servant escapes and runs to Abraham and says, you got to understand that your nephew has just been kidnapped. He's just been taken uh, by, by, uh, as a slave by this foreign king named Kedilaramar. And they're headed north to, in, 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 toward the north of Israel. And right away, Abram gathers 318 of his best men. And he goes in hot pursuit of Kedilaramar. And to retrieve his nephew Lot. And in a night raid, he sends Kedilaramar and his army running for the hills. And Abram rescues his nephew Lot and all the stuff that's been taken out of Sodom. And he brings it back. And the king of Sodom is profusely thankful. And Abram turns over all the goods and turns over all the citizens. And there's an editorial comment that is made about Lot that I want you to see. Normally you just kind of read it and pass it by. But if you understand what's going on here, it's rather important. It's found in chapter 14 and verse 12. Listen to what it says. Just a brief little comment. It says, They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. Now, look at chapter 13, verse 12. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved his, his tents to a place near Sodom. So in 1312, he's living near Sodom. I mean, he doesn't live far on the other end, as far away as he can get from Sodom, but he lives near Sodom. Because, you see, Lot, Lot wants the best of both worlds. On the one hand, Lot wants to honor what is good and right. He doesn't like the wickedness in Sodom. But on the other hand, he knows that Sodom would be a great source of revenue because they need meat and milk and cheese and wool and leather. And he can provide that for them. He's a big operation. He can undercut the mom and pop operations. He can be the Walmart of Paradise Valley. He's got a good business mind on him. But he only wants to be near. But when you go to 1412, something's happened. He's moved in. He's moved in to Sodom. Now, how did he go from living near Sodom to moving in to Sodom? You know, it doesn't tell us, but I have a theory. Do you want to hear it? Well, if you don't, I'm going to tell it to you anyway. All right. Here's my, remember, this is Dale's theory. But I think I'm close to what may have happened. You see, I think that Lot went on a business trip to Sodom to kind of let them know who he was, what he had, and what he could sell, and the price they could get. And when he went back home, he told his wife and his two daughters about Sodom, about the mega market in Sodom, about the sights and sounds and energy of Sodom. And of course, Lot's wife and daughters, they said, well, we'd like to go with you on the next trip. Please, 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 please. So he says, okay, I'll take you on the next trip. And so he took them on the next trip and they fell in love with Sodom, the mega market, spices and oils and linen and cloth from everywhere and the beauty and the, the fine eating establishments. And wow, were the guys cute in Sodom thought. Lot's daughters and 
on the way home, they said, oh man, wouldn't it be nice to live in Sodom? And so I imagine one night while Lot is sitting outside of his tent in a beautiful starlit evening, Mrs. Lot got him his favorite, a tall glass of warm curdled goat's milk and sat down next to him and started playing with his hair. And she said, honey, I've been thinking, praying, and I think we should move to Sodom. Now, don't say anything. Shh, listen. I think they need you. You're a good, successful businessman. And goodness know that city needs somebody good like you. I heard some of the women saying that their husbands were saying, you should become the president of the Greater Sodom Gomorrah Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) And you know what? I think you'd be good. And besides, your daughters and I... We're tired of living out in the country. It'd be so nice to live there. I saw a beautiful little condo on the wall. It would be perfect for us. You know, the girls have some interest there. Some boys they saw that seemed to have some interest in them. And they're not really interested in these sheep herders, goat herders. They need a good education. And you know what? I keep being invited to these social gatherings by all these women, but I can never make it. I just think we ought to move there and make a difference in Sodom Lot. And you know what? We'll try it for a year. And if it doesn't work, we can always come back here to these goats and sheep. Now, I can't prove that's what went down. But I'm guessing something near that went down. There was a little pressure, a lot of temptation. Yes, it would be easier to do business in Sodom. He can just have two or three of his good men run things on the outside of the wall. I don't know how they got there, but they got into Sodom. So, how did it go? What kind of influence was Lot in Sodom? What difference did he make there? Well, while Lot is climbing up the corporate ladder, and while he's doing well in Sodom for himself and his wife and his daughters are getting settled, God comes to visit Abram. It's a unique story you have to read, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And God comes, and, he, and, and two angels accompany the Lord. The Lord comes in what's called a theophany, and he speaks to Abram, and he tells Abram that the same time next year that Abram and his wife, who are too old to have children, are going to have a son. And before the Lord leaves, he says to Abram, he says, I'm not going to hide to you what's, what's coming down, Abram. And the two angels keep going. He said, things are so bad in Sodom and Gomorrah that even the unseen world is talking about it. So come down to see if it's true. And if it's true, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, Abram knows that his nephew lives there. And so Abram goes into this conversation with the Lord. And he says, Lord, even if only ten righteous people live in Sodom, we spare it. And the Lord says, okay. When we get to chapter 19, verse 1, two of the angels show up, and look what it says. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there, and when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, 
Come to my home to wash your feet and be my guest for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Now, it says in 1312 that Sodom moved, uh, that Lot moved near Sodom. It says in 1412 that he moved into Sodom. And it says in 191 and 2 that he was sitting at the city gates. Now, that may mean nothing to you, me, but in an Eastern culture, it means that Lot has arrived. It means that Lot occupies now a position in Sodom equivalent to a judge or a mayor. And people come to him and he settles disputes, legal disputes. And he welcomes important dignitaries. And on that day, while Lot was there doing business and he saw these two angels coming, he knew there was something different about these guys and he pays special attention to them. And notice he's anxious to get them into his house and he's anxious for them to leave early the next morning. Why? Because he knows that his city is a very wicked place. Now the angels, if you read the story, they say, no, we'll spend the night in a city square doing an inventory, kind of doing a survey. And Lot says, you do not want to spend the night in our city square. He insists that they come to his home where he makes this wonderful meal. And while they're getting ready to have this meal, there is this huge commotion around his house. All the men, the old men, the young men of the city have come and they surrounded Lot's house. And they say to Lot, send out those two men who are in there because we want to have sex with them. That's a pretty bad place. Lot comes out to them and he tries to, he tries to quiet them down. He says in verse 7, please my brothers, interesting, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Don't do such a wicked thing. And then what Lot does is the unthinkable in my mind and in my heart. And why I struggle with Second Peter calling him a righteous man. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please lead these men alone for they are my guests and are under my protection. Stand back, they shouted. This fellow came to town as an outsider. Now he's acting like our judge. Well, he was. And what kind of influence did Lot have on that city? Zero influence. Oh, he judged them by their laws, but he never once spoke up about morality. So that when he finally speaks up about what truly is right and wrong, it's like a big joke to them. Who are you, an outsider, tell us? You've been living with us this whole time, and we've been doing this the whole time, and you're telling us now what to do. You just look at this man offering his two virgin daughters to these perverts, and you wonder to yourself, you know, what an empty soul. It was interesting. I was struggling with this this week, and then, and then I just felt like God spoke to me and said, you know, it's, it's wicked, it's bad, but take a look around you, Dale. And every time a dad tells his daughter, hey, I don't know what you're going to do, but make sure you have protected sex. Wow, that is no different than what Lot was doing. He said, here's my daughter's. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I can't control kids these days. You go out there and go to the party, but make sure you got, you know, something, protect, you know, something for him. And, you know, make sure you protect yourself. What are we saying to our kids? Every time a guy goes on the internet and looks at pornography, he's no better than these perverts. Looking at women who are someone's daughter. 
It's really easy sometimes, you know, take a back seat and look, oh, how bad they were. Oh, grotesque, how wicked. And yet, my goodness, we live in Sodom and Gomorrah today, don't we? We're just as irresponsible in how we treat our children and fail to discipline them, allow them to do as they want and actually encourage it, and by our own consumerism of the filth of this world. Kind of sobering, isn't it? Well, the angels, they grab Lot and they pull him back in the house and they strike those men with blindness. And they look at him and they say, now, you go find whoever is in your family or whoever your Christian friends are. I shouldn't say Christian, they were Christian back then. Whoever your God-fearing friends are and get out of here tomorrow morning. You get out of here first thing in the morning. And, and Lot goes out and he finds his daughter's fiancés. And he says, you got to get out of here. Verse 14, quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young man thought, he was only joking. Why did they think he was only joking? Because he'd never been this upset or excited about anything before. He never stood for anything really, you know, outwardly before, right or wrong. He just kind of lived a neutral life. I know people like that, don't you? They have, you know, they're good people, they're righteous people, they believe in what's right, but they never speak out about it. They live a private little kind of relationship with what they believe is truth and right, even with God. I know Christians like that, very private about their faith. They never speak about their faith at work, at school, in the community. They just keep it hush-hush in the four walls. And so when they start to speak about something, people are going, man, you've been with me for how many years, my neighbor or whatever, and now you're telling me what you think is right and wrong? Dude, you're joking, right? I've never seen anything new or different about you. You've got to be kidding Next morning comes, and, and they, they come to Lot, and they say, you got to get out of town. Some bad things are about to happen. But it says in verse 16 that Lot still hesitated, and the angels had to take him and literally escort him and his family out of the city. Why was he still hesitating? Because Lot's life was in Sodom. It's where his business was, his money was, his income was, his influence was, his position was. His things were. It's all about to be taken away. And then they say, make sure you don't look back because God's going to rain down fire and judgment. You look back and you'll be judged as well. And so they're on their way out and Lot's wife turns around and takes a look and she turns into a pillar of salt. See, do you really believe that? Yes, I do. I've been down there, the Dead Sea. There's salt everywhere. The evidence of what took place at that terrible judgment. Say, why did she turn around and look back? Because her life was in Sodom. Her life was inside of her friends, her, her belongings, her position, her relationship, her daughters, the fiancé. It was all there. Now it's all gone. And when you come to the end of chapter 19, it's a very sad story. Lot is now hiding in the mountains. He's in a cave. He's paranoid about, you know, what's going to happen to him if other men come at him. And he doesn't want to live in a city anymore. He wants to live in a cave. And he's there with his two virgin daughters. And they start taking a look around. They realize there's, there's nobody that's going to be there for them in their old age to protect them, to, to provide for them. And so in true fashion, as you would think about Sodom and Gomorrah, the eldest daughter says, I've got a plan. Let's get dad drunk tonight. I'll go in and have sex with him. It's my uh, time. I can, I can sense, you know, my body that, that uh, I, I'm fertile. So I, I'm going to go in there. And so she goes in and has incestual sex with her father. And then the next... Nice, she says to her younger sister, we'll get dad drunk again and you do it. And it's really hard for me to imagine that Lot didn't know something was going on. 
And both girls get pregnant. And both girls give birth to men, boys who will grow up to be men who will lead nations who will oppose God's people later on in Old Testament history. And Lot's life is done. And it's such a sad ending. I want to ask you a question. If you use Lot as an illustration, is more better? No. Because he lost everything. See, while he was out there making a buck, God was getting ready to judge. And I look at our world today, and I see us out there furiously trying to make a buck, furiously trying to be successful. And don't we know that the God of the universe is planning to judge this world? And all that we accumulate will be gone. It will have no value whatsoever. Only what's done for Christ will last, it says. But I still have that other question that's nagging me, and it nagged me all week long. Like, to the point where I wondered if I have anything to preach because I had to get an answer for it, and I couldn't find it. Why do good men make such bad decisions? And then, just reading casually through the passage again, boom, it exploded off the page to me. And I want to show you where it did that, all right? Why don't you go back to chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, just about done. When Abram comes back with all the loot that had been stolen by Ketelaramar, and he brings it all back to the king of Sodom, and he brings Lot back with him, he says something so remarkable. Listen to what he says in Genesis 14, 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Listen to verse 22. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. I love that. Abram says, I'm depending on God, not you. I don't need Sodom, and I don't need Gomorrah, and I don't need you. God of the universe, the creator of all that there is. I'm depending on him. He's the one who's going to take care of me and meet my needs. And I thought, that's it. That's it. Why do good people make back choices? Because they're not depending on God. Abram depended on God. Lot depended on Sodom. Who are you depending on? You can either depend on God Or you can depend on this world. You can either depend on the company that gives you your paycheck, or you can depend on God who gave you the job to get the paycheck from the company. It's a big difference, don't you think? You can either depend on what everybody's opinion is of you, being successful in the eyes of the world, being famous in the eyes of the world, and it can matter so much what other people think about you at work, in the neighborhood, at school. That can be what drives you. Or you can say, I don't care what anybody else thinks of me. What matters to me is what, is what God thinks of me. That's what matters to me. What matters to you. Are you like Abram? You just say, hey, I'm depending on God. Little or much, I hope it's in him.
Are you like Lot? Where your dependence is on Sodom. So you can never speak against Sodom. You can never stand up to Sodom. You can't even really witness to Sodom because you need Sodom so much. I want to trust in God. No matter what it costs me. How about you? Father, I pray and ask for my own personal life and for the lives of those who are part of the Compass Church that we, oh God, would stop believing in the lie that more is better because it's not. It's not better. In many ways, it's worse. In many ways, more, Father, can rob us of everything because it gets our eyes off of you and it gets our eyes on Sodom. God, I pray that we would get to that place where our absolute dependence and our satisfaction is on you. That we would look to you as our source and our resource and not this crazy world, oh God. My Father, we would be bold in love to speak up and stand up for what is truth and what is right. Not fear what the world will say or think of us, but be ever so concerned what you see and what you think. And Father, it's not complicated. It's just a matter of trust. Trusting in Jesus. The sweetness of just trusting in you alone. And no matter what happens around us, believing that you are in control in this crazy world that we live in, oh God, help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and uh, let's continue worship with the song.
us from sin and self to cease. Us from Jesus, simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. don't you? I can hardly hear you singing. Could you hear him? I'm like, man, it should be just like, you, you want to trust Jesus, right? Amen. I just want to make sure, all right? As we go, that we trust. Now, the question we're going to tackle next weekend is, okay, so, all right, you tell us all these things about the culture and, you know, and not more is better is not true and, and, you know, we need to trust the Lord. How do you do that in a material world? Next weekend, we cover that. How do you live at peace in a material world having the right balance? All right? You don't want to miss that next weekend. Now, how many of you are running that crazy marathon tomorrow? Let me see your hands. I want to pray for you, okay? All right? I want to pray for you. And uh, ask God to keep you safe and make you a witness while you're out there. If you win the grand prize, don't forget to tithe. All right? Let's, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this uh, weekend together. And I do pray for our runners, Lord, these athletes who train so hard for tomorrow. And just, I'm just blessed that they would come here to worship you tonight. God, keep them safe. Give them a great run. And if they can be a witness along the way, use them. May they be mindful of you, Lord. And I just thank you for the ability that you've given them. And, and I'm glad you didn't give it to me, Lord. And I pray that you encourage them in Jesus' name. And all the people said... Amen. All right, if you're a guest, go to our guest center. If you want prayer, come up front.